Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vaughan, your correspondent in Paris. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and Global Affairs, or as Ido has written in the script, long job title, in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 6th of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. On Tuesday, former U.S. President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business records over allegations that he orchestrated hush money payments to two women before the 2016 U.S. election. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. We discuss what Trump's arrest and trial could mean for the 2024 presidential race. Then we discuss what Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin's loss tells us about Finnish politics and the way the rest of the world sees some national leaders. I think that Finnish people want change. They want change and now I will start negotiations, open negotiations with all parties. We also take a listener question on why China is so angry about the Taiwanese president meeting US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. If you're a listener of World Review and you have a question for us, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash youaskus. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All three of us are ill this week, so we're going to try and make this as listenable as possible. And so to start with, on Tuesday, prosecutors in Manhattan accused Donald Trump, the first sitting or former US president to face criminal charges, of trying to conceal a violation of election laws during his successful 2016 campaign. Trump pleaded not guilty to the charges and flew home to Florida, where he addressed friends, family and supporters at his Mar-a-Lago club. So Katie, we've spoken about these legal bills in previous episodes of the podcast, but obviously now Trump has been charged and he's pled not guilty to these 34 counts. Can you just bring us up to speed on where we are? Yeah, so this is 
the first of four active criminal investigations into the former president that we know about. And it is arguably the least serious, although it is still serious in its own right. Just to back up for anyone who hasn't been following this so closely, this is, as you said, 34 what are known as felony counts of falsifying business records. It relates, and it makes for great headlines to be able to say this, to hush money payments to the porn actress Stormy Daniel ahead of the 2016 election. The facts of the case are somewhat less sensational. It's more to do with accounting practices and specifically how that money was reimbursed to Trump's former fixer, then de facto representative Michael Cohen, who has himself since served time in prison. It's important to be clear at the outset, and I'll probably repeat this throughout, Donald Trump denies all wrongdoing in this case, and indeed in all the cases that are currently underway. The specifics of this that make it more serious, because this would often be treated as what's known here as a misdemeanor, which is a less serious category of criminal charge. So just the straight accounting um, allegations amount to a misdemeanor charge. But what makes it a more serious charge, what's known as a felony, is if the prosecution can make the case that first offence was committed in order to commit or conceal a second crime. Now, the specifics of a second crime have not been released. We got the indictment unsealed and the details of these 34 charges, but the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has not laid out specifically what that second crime would be or how he plans to make that case. It is thought that it is likely to relate to a potential violation of election law, but it is unclear how he's going to make that case. So this is a less clear-cut case than some issues. And there is an element of, I mean, there's, there's uncharted territory all around here in terms of a former president being indicted for the first time in the US. But reaching the bar for a felony level is a significantly more difficult task. This is not a case that is easy to predict in advance. Let's put it this way. It is also likely to take an extraordinarily long time. The next hearing in this case is set for December. The prosecution has asked for the trial to be in January 2024, which of course is also when the US primary season really gets underway, which may be partly why the defense is asking to push that trial back into the spring of 2024. But either way, we are now confronted here with the prospect of a former president who is seeking to be the president again, campaigning for firstly the Republican nomination and potentially then lightly the presidency while defending himself in a serious criminal trial. And as I said, there are three other cases that are also underway. Former president has a degree of legal difficulty, I think is a diplomatic way to put this as he approaches the 2024 presidential election. And I was wondering if you could talk about the legal reasoning that's underpinning these indictments. Because I, as I understand it, it's actually quite an untested legal theory. I think Trump is being charged under New York state law for potential violations of federal law. These are untested legal grounds. And it's possible that a, a state or a federal judge could throw out this case on the grounds New York law doesn't apply it in, in, in this case, or at least the case shouldn't be brought by New York state prosecutors. Can you talk about this and potentially how that could hold up the New York case? The defense is certainly going to make that case. And that may be why we haven't seen the details of how the prosecution want to try to make the second element of this. So as I was explaining, there's, there's a more straightforward matter of the accounting practices that in themselves would constitute a misdemeanor. And then there's the case of whether if they are found to have been carried out, if the prosecution can prove that they were in the service of a second 
crime or attempted crime. And it's that second crime that I think you're referring to as to whether a violation of election law, which was federal election, this was an election for the presidency of the United States, is there a crime there that violates New York election law? Or is the prosecution going to try to bring in the federal election? I think that the reasoning that we've seen so far from the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is to suggest that there are secondary New York state crimes, I think sensitive to that risk that otherwise he's not in a position to tackle federal level crimes as a state prosecutor. It's difficult because we don't know the details of what the second part of the case is going to be, but it would likely need to find violations of New York election law within the context of the general election. There is also a possibility um, that I've seen raised post-indictment, that there there may be a tax, there may be a New York state tax offence too. So that would make the second part of the case, which would raise this to a felony crime. But as I say, Donald Trump denies all wrongdoing and has pleaded not guilty to all 34 charges. It's very um, getting Al Capone on a tax evasion charge, isn't it? And how has Trump reacted to this indictment? He flew back to Florida, he gave a very angry speech. Obviously, there's the legal question, but there's also the political question. We're quite likely to see the campaign for the Republican primary and quite possibly the general election unfold against the background of this trial, which may or may not be completed by the time of the general election. You know, there are a lot of sensitive political questions. So how has uh, Trump responded to this and how could this play out politically? For a start, he's raised a huge amount of money. If we believe the figures being released by his 2024 campaign team, They claim to have raised $8 million since the news of the indictment broke. He is certainly trying to frame this in almost religious terms, as Megan, you've written about this and the sort of very unsubtle parallel he's drawing between himself and Jesus, talking about how he's been persecuted. He is trying to frame this as the return of the deep state, the same but much amplified now version of the story that he's been telling since 2016, that he alone is fighting for the average American and the deep state and the corrupt political elite are doing everything they can to hold him back and to stop him from returning to the White House. So that's how he's framing it. It is unclear how that is going to play across the broader population. I think certainly in terms of his base, that's likely to be very energizing. In terms of the Republican nomination, I think this does help him, at least in the short term. He has once again sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. The candidates who would like to challenge him, although in the case of Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor has not announced that he wants to seek the Republican nomination, but he is doing everything one would do if that was what he was planning to do. Before the news of the indictment, Ron DeSantis had been doing relatively well in the polls and had been trying to style himself as a sort of responsible, more palatable alternative to Trump, who you would still get a lot of Trumpism, but without all the chaos and the baggage and the human wrecking ball of of Donald Trump, you would have this sort of more competent version of that in 
Ron DeSantis. And when we first started to hear that an indictment might be imminent, DeSantis was asked about it. And as we've discussed on the podcast before, he made a joke about it. He said, I don't know what's involved in making payments to a porn star. I've got a state to govern. But once the indictment came out, he, along with every other high profile member of the Republican Party, pretty much fell in line behind Trump and his narrative that this is a political prosecution. So you had DeSantis saying that this is un-American, joining in some of the smears against the Manhattan District Attorney, saying that he wasn't going to be involved in any attempt to extradite Donald Trump from Florida, which was clearly nonsensical because he was never going to be asked to. But that has made it harder for them to attack Donald Trump because they are having to line up behind him. Last night, CNN and Fox News were carrying a Donald Trump speech live again. Um, They had stopped doing that because his speeches are boring and they go on for a long time. And there was a sense that they're just full of falsehoods. Why are we giving this man airtime? Now he's back in primetime. Yesterday, the news coverage here was following his motorcade, leaving his resort to the airport, a live feed of his plane taking off. This helps him in terms of positioning him really front and center for the Republican nomination. But I don't think it necessarily helps him with the general election. And then there is also the real legal peril that's involved in this. These are serious crimes. It's going to be a a complicated and time-consuming case to defend. And it may not be the only case that he's having to defend. So I think the idea that he is gleeful about this, I think is getting it wrong. I think he's making the best advantage of it. And it does help him in some ways. But I think his demeanor yesterday was pretty serious. It's hard to feel sure of yourself and confident and like the big man. When you've been fingerprinted, you're being led into court by police officers, and you're having to, for possibly the first time in Donald Trump's life, sit quietly and not speak until spoken to. You know, in the court yesterday, he said two words out loud, not guilty. Otherwise, he had to sit down between his defense counsel. Um, So this is a complicated and a serious case, and it may not be the only one. So I think while there are advantages in the primary That doesn't necessarily carry forward to the general election. And then the bigger danger, and I wrote a little bit about this earlier in the week, is almost regardless of the outcome, that this could really further tarnish the American legal system in the eyes of millions of Trump supporters. Regardless of the outcome of the case itself, regardless of the outcome of the election, the sort of long-term danger here is that this helps to discredit and to undermine trust in institutions they're already really struggling here. Yeah, Katie, I wanted to jump in here just to ask you about that. I'm not sure how comfortable you are going into talking about the other cases that are being investigated against him, specifically the Georgia case with his attempts to overturn the election. But is there some kind of credibility to the argument that this prosecution in Manhattan is a mistake and that it does actually undermine not just Trump's supporters' faith in the legal system, but everyone's faith in the legal system. It's the bulk of the headline of the charges, the payments to Stormy Daniels, old news. <laughs> this isn't a surprise to anyone. And then the kind of the meat and potatoes of it, the accounting things, are so convoluted and frankly a bit dull that it's really not going to capture like the wider public's imagination. And it's just, I think there is potentially a real risk of people thinking that this is politically motivated, that it's not a real like gotcha crime, when it does sound like there are other really quite consequential investigations going on that with much deeper implications. I think the district attorney here is in a really 
difficult situation. <sighs> this is all complicated by the slightly unique nature of the American legal system where district attorneys like Alvin Bragg in this case are elected. So he is a registered Democrat and he is elected to public office. So the danger is that creates the appearance that he's partisan. Of course, the argument that he would make and defenders of the system would make is that, no, that means he's accountable and that doesn't affect his ability to apply the law in an impartial way. I think the difficulty for him and for the other cases here is that if you don't act, is the message that comes from this that if you're wealthy enough and powerful enough and famous enough, then the law doesn't apply to you. You know, the, the case that Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, was making after the indictment yesterday was that, look, this is the bread and butter of the DA's of office. This is the kind of thing, it's the kind of case we are prosecuting here day in, day out falsification of business records. So we are, why should Donald Trump be held to a different standard of justice just because of who he is? So if he didn't go ahead with the case, there's a danger that Trump has boasted about the laws not applying to him. So there is an argument that no one should be seen to be above the law, and then therefore it's important to pursue this case. I think certainly it's easier to make that case in some of the other investigations here, specifically Georgia, you mentioned where there is a very serious charge of interfering with the results of the 2020 general election. I think there would be a lot more bipartisan support for pursuing that case and that case being seen to be so consequential to the US electoral system itself than this case, which is associated with a porn star, hush money, and as you say, happened eight years ago and the original thing that it's linked to many years before that. So yeah, certainly the danger is that this looks partisan in some people's eyes and that this does not seem to be the most consequential issue that the prosecutors could be focusing on. All right. So I am sure that this is a story that we'll be coming back to several times. So um, for now, let's go to Finland, where Prime Minister Sanna Marin said this week that she would resign as leader of the Social Democrats. Her party was narrowly defeated by the centre-right National Coalition Party, whose leader, Pateri Orpo, will probably succeed Marin as Prime Minister. Megan, you're our resident Scandinavia correspondent. You spoke last week in a podcast about how Marin was quite likely to lose. You've been proven right. Can you give us the background of what's happened and maybe try and explain why Marin, who people internationally, a lot of maybe our listeners at all quite positively, why maybe she wasn't seen the same way inside Finland. Yeah, definitely. So as you said, there was an election on Sunday and we spoke about this on the podcast last week and it turns out that the polling was correct. So Sanna Marin's Social Democratic Party very narrowly lost. The party came in third place behind the National Coalition Party, which came in first, which is a centre-right party. And then the far right party, the Finns party, came in second. And when I say narrow, I mean it's very narrow. So Sanna Marin's party got 19.9% of the vote. The Finns party got 20.1% of the vote. And the National Coalition party got 20.8% of the vote. So this is very fine margins. But yeah, so Sanna Marin very promptly and graciously said, this is democracy in action. This is still a great result for us because her party actually got three more seats than they did the last time. So you see some quite, quite alarming signs and it's a crushing defeat. It really wasn't. She did come in third place, but it's not like she was... Um, decisively denounced by the Finnish people or anything like that. This is pretty much very, 
prime example of a very orderly election going the way most elections in Finland do. Sanamaren, obviously we've talked about her a lot in the podcast. People know her. She's probably the most famous Finn ever. She was the youngest prime minister when she was elected in 2019. She was 34 then. She's probably still one of the very youngest prime ministers now. It's quite hard to talk about why she became such like a prominent figure without resorting to stereotypical or sounds like demeaning or sexist language. But she is very conventionally attractive. She she is very cool. She would always wear a leather jacket and spoke very succinctly and in ways that made for really good sound bites. And that kind of profile, it's good for politicians, but it also it puts you at risk of becoming a symbol or even a meme. So who she became as a politician internationally eclipsed who she actually was as a politician in Finland. And now we all know about the the scandal of her, the leaked video last August of her dancing and partying with friends. And even when you read it in newspapers and things like that described, it just sounds quite ridiculous. Like (laughs) a video showing her dancing and singing with her friends became a scandal. But it's just, it, it highlighted, I guess, how young she was compared to what our idea of a prime minister is. And so it really kind of schism between who she actually was as a person and this idea of who we think of as like a statesman or a stateswoman, more more importantly, there's become quite a divide. But also, I think a lot of the people internationally on social media and in Western headlines, they didn't really know what kind of politician she was. I bet very few people could have said the name of the party she came from or what any of the policies she championed were or what the political system in Finland is like at all. So she was the leader of her government, but it was a coalition government with five parties. It's very finely balanced in Finland. And her party almost didn't make it as the leader of the coalition last time. So to see the results on Sunday be presented as like a huge upset isn't accurate. The center, center left, which Sanamaran heads up, was switch, switched out for the center right. Now, the Finns party, which is a far right party, did come in second, but it's still not clear whether they will be part of the next coalition government. It's likely that Petri Orpo, who's going to be the likely the next prime minister, that he will try and work with the Finns party first to form a coalition, but they're not aligned on a lot of things. Even, you know, immigration is something that they're really going to have to work out. The Finns party is very anti-immigration. The NCP isn't pro-immigration, but is in favor of work-based immigration, which the Finns party is just has a real red line about any of that. So it's really not looking at weeks, I think, of coalition talks before we really know. So Santa Maren's party could end up being still part of the government if those talks collapse. So it it is really unclear. But yeah, I was wondering if either of you guys had, because I know we've discussed this idea of the memeable politician or who a politician becomes on the world stage, not quite matching the reality of who they are as a person or indeed as a political figure within their own country. You wrote a very good piece for the website about this. And while I was reading it, I was actually 
I couldn't stop thinking of how Boris Johnson is seen in Ukraine compared to how he's seen in the UK. In Ukraine, he's a hero. It's so popular. There are like Boris Johnson streets and I've seen like Boris Johnson pubs and there were like meme songs about Boris Johnson and everyone's seen the clips and etc, etc. I know people who, when they go to Kiev, they're in a taxi and the taxi driver will hear that they're British and say, oh, Boris Johnson, etc. And then you compare that to how we've seen it in the UK, which... It's fair to say he's not quite as popular as he is in Ukraine and is seen somewhat more negatively. And perhaps people don't have such a positive image of him at home. And I think this phenomenon of people abroad seeing politicians through a very narrow lens. Of course, this happens to an extent in politics generally, not just internationally. But I think especially when you combine the effects of like Social media clips where very short social media clips can be shared very widely and create a certain impression in one language, which obviously the vast majority of politics is conducted in like the home language of that country and in much more detail, much more length. People can end up forming a very partial impression of particular figures. I don't know, Katie, if you have any thoughts. Well, likewise, I I was just, before we hopped on here, I was just on a call with a Taiwanese journalist and talking about Tsai Ing-wen's meeting with Kevin McCarthy here in the US and asking how people in Taipei are following it, how important an issue is there. And I think the sort of portrayal of saying when here in the US is this sort of resolute defender of this tiny democracy next to China and that must shape how people see her. And certainly for a lot of people it does. But his response was honestly like, that's just not front of mind for most people. Like it's yes, security is a, is one of the key issues. But people don't wake up each morning thinking about whether China is going to invade. That doesn't color their day-to-day life. What people are thinking about is the economic problems, the things like the egg shortage Taiwan is experiencing, government competence. So I think when we, I think particularly as international media, there can be a tendency to, to see to see individual political systems through security, through foreign policy, when actually the bread and butter of most elections is domestic issues. It's the economy. So I think we probably can't learn enough times that really doesn't matter that much when it comes to casting a ballot in a general election. And actually, I wanted to ask you both on this theme. It seems Finland just had this ceremony joining NATO earlier this week. The war in Ukraine has been such a critical issue in Europe over the last 12 months, but yet it seems it really didn't play that much of a role in this election. So is that the case? Was the war just really not that central an issue? And I guess to to Ido, what message does that send elsewhere in the continent about the degree to which the war is this major organizing factor or are actually domestic political issues going to be what matters? That's a very good question because when it comes to support for Ukraine and joining NATO, in, in Finland, it's 100% a consensus issue. Everyone is on board, happy to do it. It was just such a non-factor in the election. And that, yeah, Petteri Orpo in his uh, victory speech made sure to like really emphasize support for Kyiv is exactly the same. We we are 100% beh- behind Ukraine. And, you know, th- it was just yesterday that on Tuesday that Finland joined NATO. So this historic turn is still happening and with almost unanimous support of the country. So it was quite a non-factor in this election. Yeah, I was in Finland relatively recently, a few months ago, when they were in the process of cajoling Turkey to to agree to approve their accession. And it was really highlighted to me to what extent this was really a 
consensus issue, as you said. Before the war, it was, I can't remember, but something like 70 or 80% against joining NATO. And then after the war, that completely flipped and suddenly it was 60, 70, 80% in favor of joining. And it was really, yeah, so it's a completely sort of consensus-driven political culture, at least on on security issues. And uh, I don't necessarily think it's the war becoming less important. I think it's just that there's a common understanding, especially in a country with Finland, with history of aggression from Russia or the Soviet Union, that there's a common understanding of security across pretty much the entire political spectrum. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. And a listener asks, why is China so angry about the Taiwanese president meeting US Speaker Kevin McCarthy? Katie, you were in Taiwan recently. Can you get into the mind of of Beijing? Well, to try and reduce a very complicated and fraught subject to a comprehensible answer, Beijing views Taiwan as 
part of China. At the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, the KMT, Chiang Kai-shek, fled to Taiwan, set up a rival government, and both continued to claim that they were the rightful government of all of China, respectively from Beijing and Taipei. The U.S., initially recognized Chiang Kai-shek's government in Taiwan as the rightful government of China, but in 1979 switched its recognition to Beijing, as many other countries did then and have continued to do since leaving Taiwan um, increasingly diplomatically isolated. I think it once Honduras, which is now in the process of establishing relations with Beijing, once that happens, Taiwan will be left with just 13 formal diplomatic partners in the world. So Beijing's fundamental beef is that Taiwan is not a country and its president should not be treated as such. So anything that confers legitimacy on Taiwan or appears to be elevating Taiwan's international status, moving closer to a de facto recognition of Taiwan as an independent state. And to be clear, Taiwan has not declared independence. And it, the position of, of Tsai Ing-wen's ruling party is that there is no need to do that, that Taiwan functions as an independent state and therefore does not need to declare its independence, which would likely trigger an immediate Chinese invasion if it did. But so Beijing is essentially trying to police Taiwan's international diplomatic profile. So anything that boosts Taiwan is troubling to Beijing because it, it tends to accuse the US of backtracking on what is known as the One China policy, which acknowledges, although does not endorse Beijing's position that there is only one China in the world and that Beijing is its legitimate government. So when something like this happens and saying when is nominally transiting the US as a refueling stop on her way to and from Central America and some of Taiwan's last remaining diplomatic partners because the US doesn't have official relations. So they call it a transit. Each way the visit has lasted between two and three days. So that's a little bit of a stretch. And in this portion of the visit this week, Tsai is meeting Kevin McCarthy today. As we're recording this, it will likely have happened by the time that this goes out. So Beijing sees that as the US House Speaker is third in line to the presidency. It's the president, the vice president, and then the speaker. So you have one of the most senior officials in the United States meeting the president of Taiwan, Beijing thinks that confers legitimacy on Tsai. They're very upset about it. This is what happened last year when Nancy Pelosi traveled to Taipei. And then you saw these really extraordinary set of military exercises around Taiwan in response. So Beijing, with its response to these visits, is trying to show where its red lines are and to indicate we are very angry about this. There will be serious consequences. Don't do it again. And certainly don't think about going further. I think what we are seeing on both sides is somewhat of a balancing act. So the original McCarthy, when he was seeking the election to the speakership, wanted to go to Taipei, was very set on doing exactly what Nancy Pelosi had done, you know, getting the picture of him meeting Tsai Ing-wen in Taipei. It looks like actually it was the Taiwanese side that said, we'd rather you didn't. Things are very tense right now. That could cause a really serious incident. So it would be better if this visit takes place outside Taiwan in the U.S., because Taiwan is coming up to presidential elections in January and the sort of dividing lines we're seeing between Tsai Ing-wen's party and she's term limited, she won't stand. 
And it's not 100% clear who the candidate will be. It will probably be the current vice president. But the way the party lines are diverging is the DPP size party showing that they are standing up to China, but that they are not reckless, that they're not going to provoke a confrontation. Whereas the KMT, the main opposition, are trying to argue that if you elect another DPP president, this is going to end in war. The DPP is going to is going to take Taiwan into a military conflict with China. So you need to vote for us who are going to pursue a more nuanced line with China and who are, who are going to steer us away from this sort of head-on collision that Taiwan is currently heading towards. On which note, the former KMT president, Ma Ying-jeou, is currently in China. So you have this sort of split screen happening currently with Tsai Ing-wen in the US saying, our future is in close ties with the West, is in maintaining our current status. And Ma Ying-jeou, who's touring China, and who's saying, look, geographical realities, geopolitical realities mean we have to have better relations with China. We can do this in a way that doesn't cede our way of life, but that steers us away from confrontation. So Tsai doesn't want a major confrontation that hurts her party ahead of the elections. And similarly, from Beijing's side, the response that we see to this may well be tempered, and maybe it won't be, who knows at this point, but the danger for, from Beijing is that if they overreact to this, particularly with Ma Ying-jeou currently in China, showcasing that side of the KMT, that could push voters back towards Tsai and back towards the DPP. So there is a sort of balancing act on both sides to not, from Beijing's side, not to be seen to let Taiwan move any further away, but not to overreact in a very kind of productive way that then just helps the DPP's election prospects next year. But certainly it's a very fraught situation and there there will be a response to Tsai's meeting with McCarthy. It's just going to be a matter of the degree of that response and whether both sides can get that balancing act right. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. A reminder that you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when you can hear more from Taiwan when I will be interviewing Paul Huang about Taiwan's military reforms. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also rate us five stars. It helps other people find this podcast. Our producer, Dinmay Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time.